is contained along with a very fascinating event from the history of the Neo-Babylonian Empire, but along with that is contained what uh, might well be called the ABCs of prophecy, uh, a very clear and simple picture of what has been and it has been confirmed by history. The book of Daniel, written in the 6th century B.C., uh, accurately foresaw the history of the ancient world as well as the history of the world at the end of time. Now, our era is left out. That is, until after the rapture. And it was to the faithful Daniel that God revealed the course of history. Uh, why God would have given the marvelous uh, explanation that is given here at this time is speculation, but perhaps at least in part, he gave it to encourage the broken nation of Israel and to let them know that though their world had been shattered, there would be victory, there would be restoration, and the purposes of their sovereign God would ultimately triumph. Now as we come to Daniel chapter 2, the city of Jerusalem is in ruins. The temple has been torn down. It will not be rebuilt after this for hundreds of years. The glory has departed. The promise that God made to write Ichabod, which means the glory has departed, on their nation has come fulfilled, and everything seems to be finished. But it is as though God is saying, it may look like that, and from your perspective it may be an end but I will yet restore my people and I will ultimately prevail and my purpose will be accomplished. Very often when God's truth is seen, it seems quite unreasonable. But I want to remind you as we uh, journey through the book of Daniel, and see so many improbable things that are nonetheless true, that our reason is severely limited. That when we think in terms of the world of sight and sound, of form and substance, of time and space, all of the observations, all of the laws, all of the things that can be discerned may be true, but all of them fail to reckon on a God whose power is so absolute that at His spoken word, everything in His universe will come together to perform His will. Unreasonable, but true. An understanding of prophecy will help deliver us from persistent, faulty judgments. But because we are limited, 
we're prone to discount the value of much that God says. But we of all people need to recognize that he really does know all. Prophecy exalts the Lord Jesus Christ and it is a source of comfort to us as we trust in him. It is fair to say that Daniel 2 is one of the most uh, important chapters in biblical prophecy. Now, in the book of Daniel, looking at the entire book uh, with one chapter each week, it is not uh, practical for us to read all of the words of every chapter. Uh, we normally may be here longer than you would like to be anyway. And uh, if we read 40, 50, 60 verses of narrative description from Daniel... Uh, every Sunday night, then we'll be here even longer than that. So I said that to say this. I think it is doubly important as we uh, study Daniel for you to benefit from it, that you use the outline in the Sunday bulletin, that you take some notes, and preferably before and after the worship. I don't mean immediately five minutes before and five minutes after, but in the week before, and in a day or two following, that you read the chapter that we're studying, as well as read through the book once carefully if you have not yet done that, because there is so much, but uh, I want us to grasp the shape of the book of Daniel, the things that it talks about and the things that it teaches us, and it is my judgment that we can do that in three months more effectively than we could do it in a year, which we could well spend in Daniel if we went into all of the details, verse by verse, all of the words, all of the images, all of the pictures. So let me encourage you to read the book of Daniel. Now, Daniel is unusual in that it is a narrative combined with the prophetic visions, combined with some very substantive teachings. Now, in the New Testament, the narratives for the most part are in the Gospels and Acts. And in, in, uh, in studying them, it is well to approach them differently than the epistles. Uh, we only had uh, 35 sermons in the Gospel of John. We have 12 in the little book of Colossians because the nature of the material is different. And so in the narrative materials, the story is often as important as some of the details. Whereas in the prophetic portions, normally all of the little details will have some significance. And in Daniel, they are usually interpreted for us, often by an angelic messenger, or as in this chapter, by a vision, a dream that God has given first to Nebuchadnezzar and then the interpretation that he gives to Daniel, the young man. So let us come to Daniel chapter 2 and consider the statue and the stone. First of all, in verses 1 through 3, which sets, uh, sets up the story that will be shared with us in the chapter, here we see the troubled king. Now in the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar dreamed dreams, and his spirit was troubled, and his sleep left him. Then the king gave 
orders to call in the magicians, the conjurers, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king. And the king said to them, I had a dream and my spirit is anxious to understand the dream. Now in verse 1, the word troubled is a very vivid word. Uh, it would have been difficult for Daniel to have chosen a stronger word. Uh, most often it, uh, it is used as the impact the hammer has on the anvil. When in the forging of steel implements and they heat the steel in the coals until it is red hot and they lay it on the anvil and they pound it with a hammer on the an anvil. That is what Nebuchadnezzar said. I am troubled as though my heart is pounded as on an anvil. Now Nebuchadnezzar is a young man. Just about a year prior to this, while he was engaged in foreign wars, his father, who was first ruler of the kingdom, had died. And he had to forsake his conquest and hurry home to stabilize his kingdom. No doubt he had some misgivings and some trepidation. No doubt he had some difficulty in dealing with the massive uh, bureaucracy and the massive uh, cabinet of ad advisors that he must have inherited from his father. He is disturbed by the dreams, by the impression that is left with him, and he genuinely wants to understand. Now something goes on in these verses that we are not told. We do not really know if Nebuchadnezzar could not remember the dream or if he was unwilling to divulge the dream. We don't know. I can understand him being troubled if he had a lingering impression of being terrified but he couldn't remember why. But I think somehow that it is more likely that here in his youth, we meet a man who within a few years will be driven to insanity by the demands of his ego and his pride. He will spend a period of seven years insane and finally will be restored to his kingdom, all of which is fully authenticated in the history of the ancient world. It is all recorded in the book of Daniel. But here at this young age, he was unwilling to bend. He was unwilling to do anything that might give advantage to someone who would take advantage of him. And so he calls together all the levels of his brain trust wanting them to work together. Now that was an unreasonable expectation in itself. And at that point, perhaps he thought that they really could help him. And perhaps he did not even know that he was asking the impossible. Or perhaps he did. Now they named the categories of the advisors of the wise men that he called. They are called magicians. Uh, that is, uh, 
those who were soothsayers, uh, perhaps scholars as well, astrologers, the conjurers, uh, the mediums and the sorcerers, the chemists, and the Chaldeans. Now the Chaldeans were the intelligentsia. They were the highly educated, the original wise men of Babylon. And in his troubles, Nebuchadnezzar turned to humanism for spiritual guidance. Notice in verses 4 through 13, here the wise men are terrified. They say to the king, tell us the dream and we'll tell you what it means. Nebuchadnezzar is not willing. They say to him boldly, and uh, their boldness is uh, a little bit impressive. Perhaps it indicates that they were patronizing him because he was such a young king. And so they say to him, no one ever has, no one ever could demand such a thing. And Nebuchadnezzar repeats his firmness and decrees that they shall declare the dream and its interpretation or the whole bunch of them will die. Young, impetuous, he now hardened and he demanded that they respond to him on terms that he dictated. No matter what they said, he desperately wanted proof that what they told him was, was true. Certainly he was skeptical, but certainly he held out hope that they could help him, but he did not want a standard prophet's interpretation. He wanted rather an honest report about what the dream meant. Now the subject of dreams and visions is another subject altogether, a subject cloaked in mystery shrouded in uh, nebulous things that are seldom precise. But the dream must have been overwhelming for this young king to feel so compelled that he must have an answer to this situation. Finally infuriated, he orders the entire bureaucracy to be eradicated. Now, you know, if there are many folks in the bureaucracy that uh, read prophecy, uh, I can understand why they got nervous a few years ago when uh, it, in, it was indicated that President Reagan was reading prophecy because the king came to the place when he said, you know, just kill them all. We'll start over. We can't do any worse than they already have. And that admittedly is attractive at times to... Uh, anyone who's hung around the Potomac, but uh, God intervened and it didn't happen. So if God wanted to preserve that bureaucracy, I guess we can endure ours. In verses 14 and through 24, 
Here is a timely appointment, and that's an understatement. A timely appointment. Daniel replied to Arioch, the captain of the king's bodyguard, verse 14. For what reason is the decree of the king so urgent? Verse 15. And then Arioch explained it to him, and Daniel went in and requested that the king would give him time in order that he might declare the interpretation. What poise? You know, Daniel is still a young man. This is in the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar. He is still, no doubt, in his early 20s. And he has the poise before he reacts, before he runs, before he does anything rash, before he panics. He asks for an explanation. And though at this point he certainly could not have been as calm and mellow as he sounds, what incredible poise he demonstrates by asking the king for time. Daniel had been in difficult situations before. He would yet be in uh, difficult situations again. And he knew where to go. He went to his friends. Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah who had already risked their lives with him in order to stand up for their faith when they were being trained and indoctrinated for the king's service. We need to remember that nothing happens that catches God by surprise. Indeed, it did catch Daniel by surprise. Of that there can be no doubt. But it did not catch God by surprise. And somehow, as Daniel came together with his friends, he did not know how. I do not for a moment believe that Daniel knew how the situation would resolve. But he did know that God could handle it. And he was willing to ask God for a solution. A worldly man, even a believer, could have done nothing in this situation. Remember as we go through the book of Daniel that probably as many as 8,000 of the best and the brightest of the young men of Israel, of the royal family, of the intelligentsia, of the priesthood, of the prophecy, of government. As many as 8,000 of them were taken prisoner to Babylon to serve the king. Only four of them made the book. Only one of them endured all the changes of empire and lived until the day that Jerusalem was restored. And all of those who sought safety in anonymity and compromise 
perished. All of them. So he called his friends together for prayer. And certainly it is true that we can and ought to pray alone. And the scripture says much about that. But I like the comment that uh, W.A. Criswell made in his comment on this passage of Daniel. He said, those who close their eyes on time are those to whom God reveals how much they have in the glories of eternity. It is always in suffering that God will make His will known. Daniel could have prayed by himself alone, but he did not. He gathered the three friends who were with him and he told them what had happened and they prayed together. There is another kind of prayer, the fellowship in prayer, communion in prayer, a unitedness in prayer. And there are times when as a people we ought to pray together. They did this. The three friends in Daniel got together on their knees. Criswell says this man Daniel lived one of the sublimest lives in recorded history and the secret of his power is to be found in his life of prayer. They prayed and asked God for an answer. God answered Daniel and Daniel praised him for the answer. It is a very uh, beautiful prayer that uh, Daniel offered in thanksgiving to God. Having prayed for the mystery to be revealed in order that everyone uh, of the wise men would not be destroyed, it says beginning in verse 19, Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a night vision. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel answered and said, let the name of God be blessed forever and ever, for wisdom and power belong to Him, and it is He who changes the times and the epochs. He removes kings and establishes kings. He gives wisdom to wise men and knowledge to men of understanding. It is He who reveals the profound and the hidden things. He who knows what is in the darkness and the light dwells with Him. To thee, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise, for thou hast given me wisdom and power. Even now thou hast made known to me what we requested of thee, for thou hast made known to us the king's matter. And it says very simply, Therefore Daniel went to Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men. Boldly, Daniel went to God for help. And God, in a move that completely separated him from the false gods of Babylon, gave the answer. Now, beginning in verse 25, here is a timely intervention. 
a timely intervention. Verses 25 through 30. Then Arioch hurriedly brought Daniel into the king's presence. And when he had been introduced, the king said to him, Are you able to make the dream known and its interpretation? Daniel said, As for the mystery, neither wise men nor conjurers, magicians nor diviners are able. And this is one you need to circle. However, there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. And he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will take place in the latter days. This was your dream and the visions in your mind while on your bed. God had appointed Nebuchadnezzar to know and to understand. Now there is so much in this chapter, so much throughout this book really that is, is ripe for discussion, so many uh, things to be explored, and we can afford but limited time on most of them. But allow me to make this comment as food for thought. In the Scripture... It is not always a sign of being someone special or someone spiritual that God gives a dream or a vision. God gave prophecy to faithless prophets that are recorded earlier in the Old Testament. One of them named Balaam sold his soul for riches to get the nation of Israel to compromise their faith in God and to, to mingle and intermix and intermarry with the Canaanites. But he was a prophet. That is, he saw visions and dreams. Nebuchadnezzar, though we have good reason to believe, became a believer in Jehovah was not at this point. At this point, this was a man who was as ruthless and militaristic and arbitrary and egotistical and unholy as a man could possibly be. And yet, in order that the vision have credibility... God gave the dream and the visions to Nebuchadnezzar. And that false prophet, Balaam, was spoken to by God through a donkey. God can choose to use whomever He pleases. And it is an unholy desire and temptation to find a way to unlock the secrets of God. It was the same desire that drove the Chaldeans into the mystic arts and the magic arts and no doubt into league with unholy spirits, with demon spirits. God is sovereign, 
He will reveal Himself as He chooses, to whom He chooses, at times of His choosing. Daniel was very careful to let the king know that only God could reveal the dream. And he sees himself simply as an instrument in God's hands. Here we encounter the term latter days, and it is used often in prophecy to talk about the end of the age to the end of human history as we know it. In verses 31 to 35, here we encounter the tall statue. Daniel begins now to explain the dream. You, O king, were looking, and behold, there was a single great statue, that statue which was large and of extraordinary splendor was standing in front of you, and its appearance was awesome. The head of the statue was made of fine gold, its breast and its arms of silver, its belly and its thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. You continued looking until a stone was cut out without hands and it struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and crushed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed all at the same time and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not one trace of them was found. But the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Daniel says to the king, here is the dream. And he describes to him the great statue that was in the dream of Nebuchadnezzar. You know, I have no doubt that one part of the dream that Nebuchadnezzar got right, but for all the wrong reasons was the fact that he was the head of gold. Now, I mean, now who else could it be? What other guy on the block, 28 years old, had become second ruler of the kingdom when he was 25, had conquered Egypt, a still formidable foe, though past the days of her greatest glory. And Israel, having captured all of the wealth that had been stored and stockpiled in the temple by Solomon. So he probably had that part right. But no doubt he was troubled by the stone made without hands that smashed the statue and ultimately filled the whole earth head of gold, chest of silver, belly and thighs of bronze, legs of iron, feet of iron and clay. Now there's so, so many things to observe here. If you start with your, uh, the chart in the back of your Chemistry 101 book, you will find that from the top down, the specific gravity of each of these elements decreases. From the top down, they start off soft and they get very hard. 
from the top down, they grow lighter in weight, but less value, less intrinsic value. So many things that we can observe about them. Notice how top-heavy the statue must have been. For on feet of iron mixed with clay, and the point of that description is that iron and clay don't mix. That's obvious. On feet of iron and clay stands a statue of iron, bronze, silver, and gold. Top-heavy, unstable. Perhaps Nebuchadnezzar was bright enough to realize that the statue, by virtue of its own composition, never had a chance to endure. It was made to collapse. But no doubt he did not know all that it meant. What a sight it must have been. Now I think it's safe to say that God had Nebuchadnezzar's attention at this point. But it's also safe to say that it took him a while to learn his lessons. Because when next we meet the three friends of Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, in Daniel chapter 6, we will find that Nebuchadnezzar has determined in his heart that he will improve on the vision. For he has constructed on the plains of Shushan a treasure city belonging to him, a great statue modeled after this one, but made of solid gold. And he wants everyone to fall down and worship it. But at this point, he is all ears. And Daniel then comes to the true story, verses 36 through 45, the true interpretation of the dream. This was the dream, Daniel says. Now we shall tell its interpretation. You, O king, are the king of kings to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the strength, and the glory. And wherever the sons of men's the sons of men dwell, he has given them into your hand and has caused you to rule over them. You are the head of gold. So there is the first element of interpretation. As God prophetically reveals the course of world civilization from the time of Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar until the end of time, the highest expression is to be the Neo-Babylonian Empire for reasons known best to the Lord the Babylonian Empire is the head of gold verse 39 after you there will arise another kingdom inferior to you then another third kingdom of bronze which will rule over all the earth. Then there will be a fourth kingdom as strong as iron, inasmuch as iron crushes and shatters all things. So like iron, like iron that breaks in pieces, it will crush and break all these in pieces. And in that you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, 
It will be a divided kingdom, but it will have in it the toughness of iron in that you saw the iron mixed with the common clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly of iron and partly of pottery, so some of the kingdom will be strong and some of it will be brittle. And in that you saw the iron mixed with common clay, they will combine one another, with one another in the seed of men, but they will not adhere to one another, even as iron does not combine with pottery. And in those days, in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed. And that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, but it will itself endure forever. Inasmuch as you saw that a stone was cut out of the mountains without hands, and that it crushed the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will take place in the future, so the dream is true, and its interpretation is trustworthy. Another opportunity to say this. Either it is true, or it is not. Either it was written in the 6th century B.C. and accurately foresaw the next 500 years of human history, or it is a fraud, and if it is a fraud, we have no reason to have confidence in any page of this book, and we need to forget it right now and go home. The reason that I follow the approach that I follow to the interpretation of Daniel in Revelation is not because that scheme or that approach is perfect. It is not. It is not pleased God to give us all the details. But I follow that approach because it takes most seriously the plain words of the prophetic scriptures. The details given describe the succession of the Babylonian Empire by the Medes and the Persians the chest in the arms of silver, a kingdom inferior to Babylon. Now, I don't know inferior in all of the ways, but one observation. Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian kings were absolute monarchs. The Medo-Persian empire was a government of laws. It was ruled by an aristocracy. We meet various kings of the Medo-Persian Empire in the Old Testament. And we know one from later in this book and also from the book of Esther that once the king had agreed to a law and affixed his seal to it as the law of the Medes and Persians, even the king could not change the law. So it was less than an absolute monarchy. It was a, a government of laws, a government of the aristocracy. The belly and the thighs were bronze. It represents the Grecian Empire. Larger, but yet inferior. 
to the original empires. They also were governed by the aristocracy. Now, the legs, the longest, represent the Roman Empire. And it is fitting that the legs would be of iron, for with imperial, militaristic, and ruthless reign, rule extended the Pax Romana, Rome extended the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, throughout the world with an iron fist. Now something quite interesting is detailed here. That Rome would ultimately be divided into two parts. And that the two parts would ultimately subdivide into five kingdoms each. And indeed, that did happen. Let me take one more shot at the critics of Daniel. The critics of Daniel say that Daniel was written uh, when Jews were hiding in the mountains from one of the uh, minor Greek rulers named Antiochus, and that Daniel was written during a period of intense persecution in order to encourage them, that it was written in the 2nd century B.C., that it was a fraud written for that time for their encouragement. But they never seem very convincingly to come to grips with the fact that Rome came after Greece, that Rome was hundreds and hundreds of years later subdivided into two kingdoms which divided into five kingdoms which then more or less dissipated. They never come to grips with the fact that if it was written in the second century B.C., how is it that you may take the book of Daniel, apply the calendar to it, and come up with the exact year of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ prophesied in this book? And I suggest to you that just as in the 6th century B.C., the things that we have to learn from biblical prophecy have been demonstrated in the minutest detail to be accurate, so the things that it has to say about the end of the age may be trusted as well. The feet of iron and clay unsettled and unstable, not cohesive at all, ultimately divided into ten kingdoms. Now in chapter 8 of Daniel, we will get some more detail of the Persian division and of the Greek empire. Now notice one more thing about the statue. The first kingdom was one. It was united. It was one entity. The second kingdom was dual. The third kingdom ultimately was quadruple. And the fourth kingdom first was two and then was ten. Deteriorating in quality, in cohesion, it accurately demonstrates the nature of all things in the created universe. 
there is a law operate, operative in the real world, in the world that we live in, that left to themselves all things deteriorate. Our sun is a minor star that is in the process of burning itself out. Left to itself, all things deteriorate. But God will set up an eternal kingdom of supernatural origin. 